For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Visit a sacred place along the U.S.-Mexico border that stands to be forever changed if a border wall is built. Did the Mayan civilization have an earlier start than was previously believed? Meet the editor of a collection of essays called Bearing Witness, 36 Mormon Women Talk Candidly About Love, Sex, and Marriage. And find out why the Tucson Audubon Society is dedicating a year of events to the humble hummingbird. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. President Donald Trump signed an executive order designed to build a wall along the 2,000-mile-long U.S.-Mexico border. He remains resolute despite the obstacles that stand in his way. One is the Tohono O'odham, a tribe whose traditional homeland straddles the two countries. Tribal leaders say a wall would desecrate what they believe to be sacred. We'll travel to that place next with reporter Laurel Morales as part of a series produced for Fronteras called Earth and Bone. We're traveling down a dirt road. As you can tell, there's many potholes and <laughs> washboard roads. Berlin Jose is the vice chairman of the Tono Otham Nation. He's also my guide today. We have the beautiful surrounding of the Sonoran Desert. We call it Tono. It means desert. Our name is Tono Otham. Tono is desert. Otham is people. Jose points to the Palo Verde, Saguaro, Mesquite, and Prickly Pear Cactus. We pass wild horses, a coyote, even a brave jackrabbit crosses in front of the truck. He says every living thing has a story, and each story comes with a teaching. And I always tell people that every stick and stone is sacred. The rocks that you see along the road have meaning. Sometimes you refer to them as the the grandfathers, the grandparents, the rocks. They have a spirit just as well. Jose drives to the holiest of rocks, Babo Kivari Peak. The Tono Otham believe their creator lives there. I ask Jose about the president's plan to build a wall across the mountain range. Over my dead body will they build a wall. It's like me going into your home and saying, you know what? I believe in order to protect your house, we need to do some adjusting. And you're gonna say, wait a minute, who are you to come into my house and tell me how to protect my home? And you probably tell me, get out of my house. Now, we're not saying get out of it. We, we asked for assistance in securing the border. Jose says they're asking the Trump administration to collaborate with the tribe. We're not your enemy. We're your ally. We want to work with you in protecting America. We arrive at Picture Rock, where Jose points to a giant wall of petroglyphs created by his prehistoric ancestors, the Hohokam. I see plants. I see animals. I see trees. A lot of animals. Mm-hmm. There's the sun. See the sun? Yeah, so this is Picture Rock. Not far from Picture Rock, Jose parks his truck beside a stream at the base of Babo Kivari. He used to visit every month, but says he's been too busy lately. He stops and lifts his face to the peak. We gotta acknowledge our creator. It's not to come thumb catch him. Our creator up above. Thank you for our visitors. Give them wisdom 
and knowledge that they may understand our way of life and why it's such an important to protect our sacred sites. I ask you to help us to understand each other so that we may respect one another. I'm pretty sure that part of the vice chairman's prayer was a message to this visitor, the one holding the microphone. Jose points to a cave about halfway up the mountain where the Tana Atham make offerings, usually tobacco or cornmeal. In return, they ask their creator, Itoi, to watch over them, to protect them from drought, invaders, and disease. Jose warns, never go there with negative thoughts, or the mountain will swallow you whole. Instead, we decide to drive to the tribe's cultural center. They built the lavish museum a decade ago with casino revenue. Aside from the school and a few government buildings, the reservation is dirt roads, simple concrete block homes, Catholic missions, and an occasional basketball court. My name is Bernard Siqueiros. I'm the curator of education here at the Tahana Atam Nation's Cultural Center and Museum. Siqueiros says the Tahana Atam ancestral land was once much bigger. It extended down to Sonora, Mexico, and as far north as Phoenix. Of course, that was before Mexico and the U.S. went to war and defined their territories. When the soldiers came, Siqueiro says his people sought refuge at Babo Kiviri, even in the winter when snow fell on the peaks. And so to escape, they walked barefooted along the ridge of the mountain north. In those days, all of them didn't wear shoes. Uh, This elder told us that there was a trail of blood uh, from the cuts in the, in the feet of these autumn in the rocks and the snow. Though still the second largest reservation in the country, the Tawana Autumn Nation is much smaller today. In 1854, the U.S. paid Mexico for what is today southern Arizona and New Mexico. The tribe was never consulted. The Tawana Autumn boundary still runs south of the Mexican border. Tribal members are U.S. citizens who can cross freely into Mexico. But since September 11th and an inpouring of people from the south, the Tahona Atham are restricted to one entry point on the reservation or U.S. ports of entry hours away. Not that long ago, the Tahona Atham welcomed strangers. They were taught by elders to give water, food, and shelter to those in need. For several years, Mike Wilson filled water barrels across the reservation. It's part of our cultural DNA uh, to offer hospitality But when I started putting out water in 2002, you saw the influx, just the sheer numbers. The police department estimated then that there were about 1,500 migrants crossing from Sonora into the Thelonautum Nation per day. So those numbers exhausted this tradition of hospitality. So many don't survive the brutal journey through the desert. Police say in 2010, half of Arizona's migrant deaths occurred on the Tono Otom Nation. Wilson says the tribal government has to take some responsibility for that suffering. The sanctity of human life is greater than any sacred site. The tribe has asked for help from the federal government and a decade ago agreed to a vehicle barrier along the border, but it hasn't prevented people from crossing or dying. President Trump says his plan to build a wall, to hire 5,000 more federal agents, and to triple the number of immigration and customs enforcement agents will stop them. We are going to get the bad ones out, the criminals and the drug deals and gangs and gang members and cartel leaders. 
the day is over when they can stay in our country and wreak havoc. Many Tana Atham worry the increased militarization will turn their homeland into a police state. At this point, it's unclear what power a simple executive order has. Rob Williams is a professor at the University of Arizona's Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program. You know, we're really in legal limbo, and I think that's a cause of, of great anxiety on the part of tribal peoples. We're not quite sure what this administration intends to do with the executive orders, uh, whether it intends to push through this wall through congressional legislation, appropriating the land, or simply attempting to command Indians that they have to cooperate with the federal government. If the Tahuna Otham decide to sue the federal government, arguing the religious value of their land, then they will be dealing with antiquated laws. The problem is that the, the guys who wrote the First Amendment uh, were busy killing Indians at the same time. It was George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and when they wrote the First Amendment, they weren't thinking of Indian religion as being included uh, in the bundle of rights that that amendment sought to protect. As we wait for the president's plan to unfold, Vice Chairman Verlin Jose has invited him to Babo Kivari. Jose believes only then, when sitting amidst the army of Saguaros and the creator E. Toy, will the president understand he needs to work with the tribe. I'm Laurel Morales, reporting from the Tohono O'odham Nation. That story was part of a series produced for Fronteras by Laurel Morales called Earth and Bone. The Mayan civilization of Mesoamerica flourished until the 9th century, when it experienced a mysterious collapse. Now a University of Arizona archaeologist suggests that Mayans may have had another civilization, one that might have met the same fate only 700 years earlier than was previously thought. Professor Takeshi Inomata's research will be presented in The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal, and it's generating discussion about one of the great mysteries of ancient times. Tony Perkins talked with Professor Inomata about his research. We've learned in ancient history that the Maya built these great temples. They uh, practiced uh, agriculture. Yes. They charted mm-hmm. the stars. Mm-hmm. But they, they did this in the ninth century. Yes, uh, my heyday of my civilization was generally from the 3rd to 9th century. But the many of the Maya cities were abandoned during or around the 9th century. Yes, And you found that uh, hundreds of years before that, there was another Maya civilization. Yes, so when Maya civilization was getting to this heyday, they had another collapse. And then before that, there's a really the beginning of this Maya civilization, which we call the pre-classic period, or we might call it pre-classic Maya civilization, in which many, they built big cities and then started to develop uh, hieroglyphic writings and then also mathematics. What's the difference between that older civilization and the newer one? Well, actually, it's, it's pretty much the same civilization, continuation of civil, uh, same civilization. But uh, there was this up and down in political processes. One theory says that it was political problem 
Other, another theory says it was ecological problem with deforestation. Another theory says it was climate change. Possibly it was, it was a combination of those factors. But it looks like there was an initial problem which was tied to political problem and then also warfare, intensification of warfare. So first civilization didn't come to a complete end. It, did it just stall out uh, and then regained power? Yeah, they did gain power. So it was not just a single party, but there are various cities. Then some big city collapsed and abandoned, but some city survived and then came back and then started to build a new dynasty. What is it that uh, you've been able to find out that relates to uh, a possible resolution of the mystery of what happened to the civilization? What I think is that, that to find out why or why there was this abandonment or what caused it, to find that out, we have to know how these events unfolded what happened first. So in that sense, we built pretty precise chronology. Uh, you and your team uh, used radiocarbon uh, dating. Right, that's uh, right. It's a more precise way of uh, creating the timeline. Yes, well, radiocarbon dating has been around for many years, uh, but the technology has been getting better and better. So early days, that dating was not very precise. But now we are getting to the point that the radiocarbon date, dating is precise enough. And then also we use, we use a statistical technique called Bayesian analysis through which we try to refine the date. Then we can get a pretty precise picture. How do you think your research and your findings will help uh, historians and archaeologists do the next big study? on Mayan civilization? Yes, uh, of course, this question of why these collapses or abandonment happened is still a big question. And uh, I th we see this study as an important step toward better understanding of that issue. But at the same time, we are not really talking about the end of civilization. So there, was these, there were these political crises then another important question is how Maya civilization came back from this crisis, which gives us a probably important implication for our own societies and uh, today's problems, too. All right, Professor Inamata, thank you very much. Thank you. The Mormon Church is well known for placing an emphasis on public service and socially conservative politics, as well as having a heavy influence on the lifestyle choices of its members. University of Arizona graduate Holly Welker, a fourth-generation Arizonan and an inactive member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, has compiled a collection of essays called Bearing Witness, 36 Mormon Women Talk Candidly About Love, Sex, and Marriage. The book's contributors examine many aspects of the intersection between womanhood, matrimony, and faith, as we'll hear next when Bryn Baylor talks with Holly Welker. Why did you feel called to edit this book? I moved to Utah in 2008 
And that was right when things were starting to heat up with regards to California's Proposition 8 amending their constitution to outlaw gay marriage after it had been legal. The LDS Church was instrumental in that fight, and when it passed, there was a great deal of anger and outrage. Was it a matter of the church defining what marriage really was? That's a really succinct way to put it. Yes, I was con- I was concerned. I was outraged by the church attempting to define what marriage really was, especially after its own complicated history with marriage through things like polygamy. Did you also use it as almost a way to examine your own feelings about the church? Oh, absolutely. The fact that I am not an expert on marriage through any sort of personal experience doesn't mean I have nothing to say. I can be in many ways like an anthropologist who, precisely because I'm not as enmeshed in it, can step back and help people tease out insights about their own experience. What are you hearing from readers who are both inside and outside the LDS Church? Many faithful Mormons will, their first question about the book is, is it pro or anti regarding the church? My answer is always neither. It does not take any particular position on anything really the church is doing except some of the means by which it encourages people to marry young. My favorite thing is when people tell me that they're surprised at how good the writing is, that all the stories are interesting and flow well. And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's why the writers and I went through them half a dozen times or so to make sure that they were good. I have a degree in poetry, an MFA from the University of Arizona, and I wanted the essays in the book to sound like literature. You write in the book that it's hard to be Mormon and not think a lot about marriage. Because being married is a commandment. Mormons take the instruction in Genesis to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth very literally. They understand that they are supposed to not just marry, have children, and have quite a lot of children. Mormons believe that the name Heavenly Father, when it is applied to God, is literally true, that he is a father and that he is also married. If you want to be perfect in the same way that God is perfect, you must marry. Having a family is a requirement for personal salvation as well as veneration of God. Yes. Marriage is both the means by which you demonstrate your righteousness and the reward for that righteousness. For someone who doesn't have a marriage prospect, that must be frightening. Yes, especially for women. It's not as bad as it was, as I mentioned, in my mother's generation, but women are still often defined by their relationship to men. And so for a young woman who really does want to marry, to have no prospects, yes, it's terrifying, it's lonely, it's very bad for her self-esteem often. In the LDS Church, families are not merely a marriage here on earth. The most important consideration is that people will have the opportunity to maintain forever the relationships that brought them joy in this life. Not all marriages are wonderful. Luckily, ceilings can be dissolved. It has to be done at the highest levels of the church. The top leadership in Utah has to give permission. What if you don't get married again? You're kind of in the same situation as before you were married. And that, frankly, is a reason they sometimes give for not approving requests for temple divorces. One of my friends from high school got married at 19, divorced at 20, 
there wasn't physical abuse, but there was emotional abuse. And she really did not want to stay married to that guy. And they would not dissolve her ceiling until she became engaged. When did you decide to leave the church? My mid-twenties, I was invested enough in the church that I volunteered to serve a mission. Despite my doubts, I actually had serious doubts about the doctrine. I thought trying to persuade others to believe it would convert me more firmly. It backfired. I actually finished my mission, but I came home no longer believing. And even after that, it still took me three more years to actually stop attending church because it just was so much a part of my life. It felt like an amputation. What type of discussion are you hoping to inspire at the book reading? Mormon women are not simply some monolithic group. They often have considerable self-awareness about their decisions, even though those decisions aren't the ones that would be expected from the society at large. Marrying at 19 as a virgin, for instance. In so many regards, they are still nonetheless just your plain old average American women. Just like anybody else, they want happiness, they want self-fulfillment. Mormon women are aware of the challenges they face without fully understanding them, which is often true of anyone who's starting a new endeavor, whether it's going to college, beginning a new relationship, getting a new job. You have a sense of what you're up against, even if you don't know all the details. Bryn Baylor spoke with Holly Welker about bearing witness. 36 Mormon women talk candidly about love, sex, and marriage. Welker will appear at a reading and book signing at 7 p.m. on Friday, February 17th at Antigone Books on 4th Avenue in Tucson. Arizona is famous for its natural beauty and impressive sights, including the Grand Canyon and the majestic Saguaro. But there are other attractions so small that if you blink, you might miss them entirely. This year, the Tucson Audubon Society is celebrating one group of brilliant little birds as part of a multifaceted program that welcomes your involvement. Tony Paniagua has the story. If you explore the outdoors in southern Arizona, chances are good that you'll see a bold and intriguing hummingbird nearby. It may sit on a branch for a few seconds and then take off like a little missile, chasing away its competition or looking for food among the flowers. This region of the country has more than a dozen species of hummingbirds that captivate locals and residents alike. They're fascinating. They're so quick and um, yet when they sit still, like that one over there, they're just beautiful, unique. Lori Vaughn lives in Oregon, but she's visiting Tucson for the first time when we find her at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum's hummingbird aviary. She carries a large camera and lens combination, thrilled by the opportunity to get near her subjects and work on her photography. For these pictures, Vaughn is focused on a male Anna's hummingbird. The little confident creature has a mostly greenish gray body, except for the iridescent area around the throat. He's just sitting there taking it in. Along with Laurie Vaughn, many other people enjoy nature and hummingbirds, including Tucson resident Jenny McFarland. They're so beautiful, uh, they're so small, they have such the amazing you know, flight ability where they can hover, right, you know, hover around. No other bird can do it the way hummingbirds can. Uh, they have the beautiful iridescent feathers, and they're just, they're just such amazing birds, just captivating. And McFarland wants more people to jump on the bandwagon for the little birds. 
McFarland is a conservation biologist for the Tucson Audubon Society, which designated 2017 as the year of the hummingbird. And it's going to be a whole year dedicated to celebrating, exploring, and supporting hummingbirds. And hummingbirds were chosen because they're such amazing special birds, and southeast Arizona is such a special place for hummingbirds. We have 13 species of hummingbirds here that you can see every single year, plus four additional species that you can see on certain years that don't show up every year. The program has various components, such as contests in photography, writing, and art. Organizers are also encouraging you to plant gardens to benefit hummingbirds and to engage in citizen science. Not just scientists, anybody can get involved. We're doing hotspot watch where anybody can uh, go to a place where there is hummingbirds and for five minutes watch the birds and then report what they see. We're doing hummingbird blitzes where a specific days throughout the year, people can report all over the city where they're seeing hummingbirds. Then we can have a kind of a day snapshot of where all the hummingbirds are in Tucson that day. And then we also have an interactive map on our website where if you create a hotspot, meaning making your yard friendly for hummingbirds, you can submit that onto our map just so we can see how many people in Tucson are actively trying to help hummingbirds. Tucson Audubon is cooperating with other groups, including Tucson Botanical Gardens and the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Shawnee Riplock-Peterson is the curator of mammalogy and ornithology at the museum, where she shares some interesting information about hummingbirds. They really are the only bird that can hover, go backwards, forwards, sideways. And we hear some really interesting myths in here that they don't have feet. They have feet. Uh, they just can't walk from like a normal bird would walk. They can go a little bit sideways, but mainly what they do is fly. That's how they get all their nutrition. In here, we provide them with a balanced diet, but they're big insect eaters. A lot of people don't have any idea how many insects they eat, and they eat about half of their body weight in food a day. That's huge. We could go on all day about how cool these birds are. Kat Rombly also works at the museum as the media and marketing specialist. People just seem to connect to the hummingbirds. Every time I ask a guest, I'm like, what was your favorite thing about being here? They always say the hummingbird aviary. So I think it's wonderful that these creatures are getting the recognition that they deserve. I think it's an amazing idea. We call them our winged wonders here. Oregon resident Lori Vaughn agrees. While she won't be here for the rest of the year, she likes the designation for 2017. I do. I do. I think they're special. They're so tiny. They got these little tiny eggs that are about the size of a Tic Tac, which is incredible. That ends up being a bird. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's great. This is the first time that Tucson Audubon Society celebrates one type of bird for the whole year, but the program is going to become an annual tradition. You can find hundreds of species in the Tucson area, so there will be plenty of options moving forward. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. If you'd like to learn more about our tiniest avian neighbors, the Audubon Society is hosting a Tucson Meet Your Birds event beginning at 7 a.m. on Saturday, February 18th at Sweetwater Wetlands Park in northwest Tucson. You can see some photos and get more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.